welcome to this episode of Inside the Vault. Today, we're excited to have Michael Schwartz from Smart Stop Self Storage REIT and Ben Aikenhead from Pacific Oak Capital Advisors join us. Michael is the founder of Smart Stop Self Storage and currently serves as Chief Executive Officer. He has more than 30 years of experience in real estate, securities, and corporate financial management. During the last 17 years, he has transacted more than $6 billion in office, industrial, retail, student housing, senior housing, and self-storage properties. He is a renowned expert on commercial real estate, REITs, and 1031 structures. He is frequently invited to speak at national conferences and has been interviewed by major news media. SmartStop is a self-managed REIT with a fully integrated operations team of approximately 400 self-storage professionals focused on growing the SmartStop Smart self-storage brand. SmartStop, through its indirect subsidiary, SmartStop REIT Advisors, LLC, also sponsors other self-storage programs. Ben currently serves as Managing Director at PAC, PAC Oak or Pacific Oak. He is responsible for building and ma managing Pacific Oaks private placements business. In this role, Ben is building Pacific Oaks DST business, single family rental business, and opportunity zone fund. He works with the Capital Markets Group to execute capital raising for those platforms, as well as Pacific Oaks acquisition, asset management, and residential teams. Pacific Oak Capital Advisors is an investment management firm that focuses on real estate and real estate related investments. Pacific Oak is and its affiliated companies currently manage a portfolio of real estate valued in excess of $3 billion across a diverse array of assets. So as you can see, we've got two experts with us today. Michael and Ben, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, so let's jump right in. Uh, first of all, before we jump into too many questions, if, if uh, you could just each take 30 seconds, give us an update on who SmartStop, who Pacific Oak is. Michael, we'll start with you, who you are and uh, uh, what you're currently up to at your firms. Sure, well, you know, like you said earlier, SmartStop Cell Storage has been exclusively for the last seven years, kind of focusing on uh, the cell storage industry with our brand, SmartStop Cell Storage, the smarter way to store. We currently have about $1.7 billion of cell storage um, under management from uh, acquisition cost uh, perspective. We do have uh, uh, two underlying, um, we have three funds, SmartStop Cell Storage REIT, it's a flagship program. We have Strategic Growth Trust too, and then we've launched Strategic uh, Storage uh, uh, 6. And so I think, you know, all in all, uh, we're a vertically integrated self-storage platform from um, a uh, acquisition perspective, we can do development, we can do redevelopment, we can buy certificate of occupancies, lease ups, um, under highly occupied under managed properties and, and uh, highly occupied properties um, through our uh, management platform. And so we manage all our properties internally. You know, we have a very large staff with respects to from pricing to marketing to management and out in the field. And so uh, that is primarily what uh, we've been, uh, we have been focused on in the last 17 years and more importantly, obviously in the last uh, you know, few years. Great, thank you, Michael. Ben? Thank you. So Pacific Oak uh, manages approximately three, three and a half billion dollars worth of commercial real estate across the United States, primarily across publicly uh, registered vehicles, non-traded REITs under the Strategic Opportunity REIT banner, 
um, but also a publicly listed Singapore REIT, um, all the assets held in the United States. Uh, the partnership or the business was founded in 2019 as a spin-off from KBS by KBS Capital Advisor co-founders Peter McMillan and Keith Hall. Um, we are focused on total re return real estate investing across multiple asset classes um, and everything from uh, raw land development to uh, existing properties. On the private placement side, we are very uh, focused on using the distribution channel that has raised the capital for those REITs uh, to also raise private capital across a wide variety of asset classes and structures, both tax advantaged and non-tax advantaged. Um, and we are looking to deploy decades worth of collective uh, commercial real estate expertise um, in the senior management team and the uh, the day-to-day -day asset management and acquisition team to find really interesting opportunities um, and thus deliver outsized returns to our investors. Okay, Ben, thank you very much. Guys, I want us to focus on technology and customer service a little bit today. Uh, two topics that aren't talked about as much. So uh, let's talk about it in this way. How are advances in technology and advances in customer service impacting your business today? And Michael, we'll start with you first. Well, I think those are two aspects that have uh, um, impacted us dramatically um, over my last 17 years in self-storage. So if you kind of think about it, we just start with uh, technology. Uh, there wasn't a lot of technology that was deployed. The only technology was a simple operating system to kind of cheap, keep track of rentals and units. If you wanted to do any pricing changes, you essentially dumped it um, in an Excel spreadsheet, data sorted, and you, uh, by feeling, decided who and uh, you would want to raise your rates. And those that you would raise your rates, you get a postcard, and you would write in the rate, their new rate, and then put a postcard and, uh, and send it out. And so just from a pure um, 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 technology perspective, um, that we didn't market um, like we do today. Yeah, we marketed yellow pages. So yellow pages and simple technology was effectively how we, uh, we marketed. Well, today from a technology perspective, you know, we have a, a, a data warehouse, we have a significant operating system. You know, we have a lot of algos that help calculate based on supply and demand across our portfolio, what that pricing is gonna be. Um, if it's a, you know, a, a, a non-climate control and it's 95% occupied, we're probably raising rates. If it's a non-climate control, uh, a climate control property in the fourth, fourth floor that's 70% occupied, we're probably reducing rates or adding promotions. But all this is done uh, based on a significant amount of technology. You know, the utilization of digital marketing, web development are all another aspect that have taken over from Yellow Pages. And so whether it's uh, being relevant within um, the, the, uh, the search engines or being relevant within Google Maps or, or uh, you know, the Apple Maps with respect to where your self-storage property is. So there's been a significant uh, transformation from a customer serve, uh, from a technology perspective. From a customer service per perspective, if you think about it, the customer service 17 years ago was one person or one and a half people at the property. And that was it. Today, it's that's transformed into a major call center that can transact self-storage at a very high level, answer your questions, give you instructions, pay your bills, and also execute a lease. In addition, 17 years ago, a lot of our properties, or most of them, had someone living at the property. Well, today, that's probably 20, 
maybe 15 to 20% of our overall portfolio. All new properties are effectively more retail-minded. Uh, so technology and customer service have changed dramatically within the self-storage industry over the last 17 years. Great, Michael, thank you. Ben, you wanna chime in there? No, absolutely, and it's, it's actually in some ways very uh, re repetitious because um, I think everybody in these businesses um, has understood that they are sitting on large amounts of data um, and being able to manage that data using technology uh, is both very advantageous for optimizing your offering and your economics, um, but it's also very advantageous for delivering better customer service. Uh, you're not relying on kind of the anecdotal impressions of a manager uh, you've got the data. And in that regard, I don't think these sectors are radically different from many sectors in the modern economy where you know, data has become king. Specific to single family rental, um, hasn't really been around for 17 years. I defer to Michael's uh, tenure in that regard. But over the 10 years that the sector has been around um, and, and institutional investors have become more prevalent in it, um, I think a lot of the themes Michael's talking about are, are true. I would add that the regulatory oversight in the single family rental business is relatively higher. Uh, you've got a lot of state level uh, landlord tenant regulatory issues to manage. Um, and this is a consumer you know, facing in their home business. Um, and so the regulatory burden has always put a, a, a very heavy emphasis on being able to track the data. Uh, and that's always been true. And I think it's something that's often overlooked by people coming into the space, the, the nature they're in. Um, but other than that, I, I think Michael's exactly right. And we use it today in very similar ways. Um, uh, driving occupancy, rent matrix. What's when, when are you at the right point to be increasing rents? Um, you can feed in a lot of local economic data about job growth and wage growth and so forth to kind of calculate those types of dynamics. Um, you've got a lot of data about what repairs and maintenance have been on individual properties in different markets with different climate conditions. You can predict ahead of time um, where the repairs and maintenance is, is going to come so I think there's a, a lot of technological aspects that are very similar between the spaces and across the industries, but obviously each industry has its own specific flavor. Then on customer service, um, I think this is um, quite a challenge in the single family rental space. You're dealing with people's homes. Uh, they tend to get quite emotional and immediately focused on them. This is not something that kind of slips to the back of their mind. And tenants range from uh, people who who will always be renters, kind of workforce housing folks, all the way up to millennials who are on their way to buying a home at some point because they work in a knowledge industry and make several hundred thousand dollars a year. And you really need to be able to have a level of um, kind of bespoke, high touch customer service uh, in order to keep that, the, that range of tenant base uh, happy. Uh, and that's still very much a human factor. You can do a lot of things with technology, to assist in rental payments and virtual tours and you know virtual doorbells and all those kinds of things. Um, but at the end of the day, you need to be responsive to somebody when they call up on the phone at three o'clock in the morning and say, you know, the shower's not working or whatever it is. So that tends to be a higher touch and still resolutely human process. Okay, great. Thanks guys. So let's move into another topic right now, real estate investing. 
at least uh, your typical non-trader REIT has always been known as an income play. Maybe some people have talked about it as a growth play. I'm curious what you guys think about the income and growth. How do you, uh, how do you solve for coverage and value or income and growth? Income and growth. I think in a single family rental context, uh, the asset class offers both almost intrinsically. Um, there's a component of the single family business which has become relatively popular recently, the so-called build to rent or build for rent strategy. Uh, where home builders have partnered up with some very large capital sources, uh, generally speaking, building, um, you know, buying land and building large elements uh, uh, of single family homes. Sometimes people refer to these as horizontal multifamily because they're also built around kind of shared amenities and so forth. Um, but I don't think that's because the sector didn't offer a growth potential. Um, I think it's because you've got large amount of capital looking to put large amounts of capital to work in one investment um, and the home builders have figured out the demand is oftentimes from renters um, because I think the intrinsic truth in the single family rental business is with cap rates still comfortably in the sixes um, depending on your asset type and location and so forth and house price appreciation um, strong and the growth of capital coming into the sector driving down the cost of, of, of capital particularly on the debt side um, as investors, both equity and debt are significantly under allocated to the space. Um, it's not an either or in our business and it's candidly not a dramatically different or difficult rather mix to achieve income and growth in the space. Um, I, I think to the extent people are just doing development, they're obviously focused on the growth side of it, but the vast majority of folks are not. I would say it's just as a backdrop at Pacific Oak, we've got a long track record of total return, growth-based uh, investing in our non-traded REIT businesses, strategic opportunity REITs, which have always been a total return first um, vehicle. Uh, and we've been fortunate and good and gotten some great results there. Um, but I think in single family rental specifically, it's not a difficult match income and growth. The asset class offers both inherently. Okay, Michael, do you feel the same about self-storage? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it, may, it may be a, a slightly different, but uh, I think it's, it's uh, consistent with uh, the, the theme. I think uh, when I look back at my career, I think uh, to your point, uh, Stacy, is that, you know, early on I was income and income only, and I had kind of those blinders on. And there was about, uh, it was about like three, four years into my uh, self-storage career that I recognized that just like um, a trader, sometimes you want to go long stocks and sometimes you want to go long bonds, that we recognize that if I just was in a position of always just buying stabilized, that um, when the market would change um, and maybe the stabilized uh, properties start to get a little expensive, you're, you're, you're kind of forcing your capital out, maybe on terms that you're, you're not necessarily um, happy with. And so um, I did. I did change my strategy, and so it, I've been for 14 years now a income and growth, or growth and income. And I think that uh, it's probably you know true with the the single family um, homes is that if you build a self storage property, it eventually that growth becomes income, and it's consistently pretty much income for the for the on a go forward basis. So you know we're not talking about growth where you're finding a a office building that's you know completely vacant and maybe leaning on CB or or Cushion Wakeville to kind of lease it up. We're taking you know our existing management team. So from a a growth and income perspective, that's one of the things I think SmartStop prides itself on is that we'll do development. 
You know, we try not to over um, um, put uh, over develop or, or over allocate development, I should say, into our funds because they do take time. It takes, you know, you acquire a piece of land, it may be a year, a year plus to get it entitled, a year to um, build a self-storage property. So you're two years out before you're able to start to lease. But we, we think it's an incredible component when we can solve to maybe an eight development yield in a market that's a six cap rate or even a five cap rate. And so that spread is incredibly important. But also we recognize the self-storage certificate of occupancies, buying properties at 0% occupancy in which uh, we have no um, um, construction list uh, or development risk. All we have is lease up risk. And we've been very, um, I think uh, we have case study after case study over the last you know, 15 years or so of our ability to stabilize a property from 0% occupancy. And then, you know, buying lease ups or, you know, uh, do expansions or buy properties that are um, highly occupied, but undermanaged, maybe a mom and pop that doesn't have the technology, the marketing budget, the clustering of assets that can um, create some economies of scale. And then also stabilized assets, those income producing assets. And I think my um, mantra today is, is constructing a portfolio that has elements of all of them. I'm willing to sacrifice coverage in a distribution uh, for a period of time if I have growth that will be able to outstrip the distribution that I'm currently paying and in addition create some additional value from an NAV. And so our firm, um, I think we've had 14 valuations, you know, um, over the last, uh, I think uh, since uh, probably 2009 or so. And uh, two of those valuations before there was any guidelines in our industry. And so we've seen through those um, NAVs, that growth component has been incredibly helpful. We may not have been covering our distribution, but we've seen our value go up. And then at the end result, you know, when we sold our last fund to Exerspace in a $1.4 billion transaction, we were just got to the point where we're fully covering our 7% distribution. Our NAV was about uh, 1066 plus or minus at that point, and we sold at 1375. So that growth kicked in and provided a nice uptick for our shareholders. So um, I am you know, um, a big believer of income and growth. Uh, Michael, just a follow-up question there. Does it make uh, some advisors or some broker dealers uncomfortable that you may not be covering early on uh, and they are left to you know, somewhat trust you on the growth component. Does that, does that ever cause any kind of uh, issues or is there a comfort level uh, with you and your firm at, that, at this point regarding that issue? Great question. Early on, big issue. Um, after our last liquidation, um, it's less of an issue. It's more of an issue maybe with a few firms and advisors than a majority of them. And I think that uh, given where we're, we're at today and, and given where pricing and, and valuations of, of storage, I think that we've been able to demonstrate specifically over the last 12 years, not only individual properties that have created a tremendous amount of cash flow and upside, but also you know, our previous liquidation. So I, I would say that we've overcome 95% of those potential questions of hurdles. But again, that doesn't mean that um, we um, are insensitive to those concerns or insensitive to uh, covering our distribution. But we recognize since 1502 that we're not only in a cash flow business, we're in an NAV business. And so it's hard um, um, to, to uh, deliver 
only cash flow and deliver upside without growth. And so um, I've proven it over the last 17 years that it's a good strategy. But you know, you have to be careful. I think that we augment that strategy also with our Canadian exposure, not the Northwest Territory, but Toronto. And having that ability that 10 year, 11 years ago when I moved in there, we had no experience in there. Today, we have 17 assets and probably another 30 behind that in development. And we're solving the seven to eight um, um, development yields in a market that is probably a four and a half cap. And so that's highly accretive on a variety of different levels. And so, um, you know, past performance is not indicative of future returns. But again, I think our, our, our total return strategy has worked. Great. Okay. Thank you, Michael. So, uh, Ben, let me go back to you and let's talk about the market uh, for just a second. Um, is there a fragmented market right now? And, and if so, why is that? And what consolidation opportunities do you see as a result? Yeah, the, the single family rental market um, is definitely fragmented. Um, there's a lot of statistics floating around about this, but approximately 20, 22% of the US housing stock is um, rented um, in single family rental strategies. But of that, only two, maybe 3% is owned by institutions. The vast majority is owned by ma and pa operators uh, who are just in the business. And we probably all have friends who own a home and rent it out as a kind of part of their retirement package or investment portfolio. Um, the consolidation train is coming though. Uh, and it's coming primarily because of the things we've talked about today, technology and customer service. Uh, but also consolidation on the repairs and maintenance, the, on, the ongoing capital expenses. This, this business is more capital intensive than people perhaps understand initially uh, in terms of repairs and maintenance, ongoing expenses. And as you build scale in a market, uh, those costs become significantly easier to manage and the economies of scale are quite striking versus smaller operators. So as the institutional capital builds in the space, uh, the, the, the trend towards consolidation in our judgment is going to be inexorable. It's just driven by straightforward, pure, raw economics. Um, and we're seeing it already uh, in which uh, the consolidation is beginning to, to start. Um, we don't think that's gonna stop. Uh, we think this looks a little bit like multifamily in the early 1990s. Um, there's kind of really striking similarities um, in terms of the fragmented ownership and the relative youthfulness of institutional participation and capital markets in the space. Uh, and we think that the combination of you know, the, the driving economics and the investor under allocation to the space will provide compelling grounds for future consolidation of ownership in the space. Okay, great. Michael, what do you think? I think that that parallels nicely with storage. I think the only difference is storage is just, you know, the concept of three walls and a door just been a, around a little bit longer than um, um, the single family uh, rental, you know, concept. Um, there's no question that for when I got into storage, this fragmentation I believed in. Now, I believed in something that I hadn't um, um, bared out with, you know, the execution of it through some type of uh, larger transaction. But it was clear to me that you know we could buy a property that had maybe a 45 to 50 percent expense ratio and over time we could drive that expense ratio down to 30 percent 
Um, and um, in addition, that there were individuals that are interested in self-storage, but they wanted to put out $100 million or $500 million. And there, there wasn't um, maybe the, the patience to go out and buy a $3 million, then a $5 million, and, 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 and over time, put together a diversified portfolio. So when I got into this industry, the fragmentation um, of this was 80% of the overall ownership of self-storage was effectively individuals that own one, maybe two self-storage properties. Today, it's 74%. So we have seen um, that this fragmentation play, there's been a squeezing of down 80% to about 74% uh, today. However, that still, I think, um, creates a huge opportunity. And I think what's happened too is that the word is out now, self-storage is core and more. And I used to, I've written two white papers of self-storage's core and everyone just said, you're crazy, Michael, it's office, it's retail, it's multifamily, it's industrial. And, you know, self-storage has, you know, consistently provided really solid returns with, with, with um, overall less volatility. Well, after COVID-19, um, where storage just has performed amazingly well um, after, uh, um, you know, the pandemic hit us through the end of last year. And actually this first quarter, we had crushing returns, probably the strongest returns I've seen in the last, you know, 17 years of, of, my, um, uh, um, in, uh, of my, uh, my career. But again, that has also brought in a lot of institutional quality players. So I think that fragmentation is still there. And now with more institutional players, that story still bears out of aggregating these portfolios and then potentially selling them to larger um, uh, private equity shops or REITs that are looking to keep growing. Okay, so let me ask you uh, guys this. Um, been a lot of discussion about COVID over the last year and some industries have benefited while others have been hurt. Storage and single family rental, uh, and you just alluded to it, Michael, uh, has, have not been traditionally considered to be core, core real estate. In fact, they're maybe newer, at, at least from an institutionally managed standpoint, newer asset classes. So given all of those facts, is the opportunity in, so in storage and single family rental, is the opportunity over? given the, the uh, strong recent growth and, and capital inflows, was this just a COVID phenomenon? Michael, let me go to you first. Um, well, you know, it's, it's an interesting question and I think history will bear it out, you know, probably 20, 12, 24 months from now. Um, um, I would say that, uh, that, you know, we believe in diversification. So buy single family, buy self-storage, build a diversified portfolio. Uh, to say that um, we got a COVID bump, yeah, we could say that we got a COVID bump, but that doesn't, you know, portend to that this overall drop in the bottom of, of self-storage from values, from economics, et cetera. I think what it's proven is that, you know, we've been able to survive development cycles in self-storage. We've been able to survive the great recession in self-storage. We've been able to survive another development cycle and you know what? We've been able to survive something that um, I don't think we ever contemplated. COVID-19 and a pandemic on March 13th of 2020, you close down your office space, you send 100 people from your offices home, and you're meeting on a daily basis through conference calls or Zooms with your management meeting and your board, and you're praying to God that this is not over and that you're not going to lose every dollar of money raised um, with your shareholders. 
And then you come and come to see that your management team comes together and, and you, you can decentralize your office and people are still going to be productive. You decentralize you know, your call center and you can still conduct business. And then all of a sudden, at least from you know, my little piece of snapshot of storage is from March 13th of uh, 2020 to April 15th, we were down 40% uh, in move-ins. And that was scary. It was absolutely scary. We're in the middle of our busy season. But by the end of April, we were only down 20%. And in May, we built from there. In June, in July, in August, in September, in fourth quarter, you know, we had tremendous increase in NOI. And we, we, we call out my Canadian portfolio where they under three lockdowns. And we increased our NOI 24.1% because of the need in storage. And so to answer your question, yeah, I think that storage has had a little bit of a bump, maybe similar to other natural disasters that can accrue with respect to flooding and hurricanes and, and tornadoes. But nonetheless, I also think that the penetration, the knowledge that cell storage is there for you in times of change is incredibly important. And more importantly, you're not tied to us forever. You can move in for a month, three months, six months, or five years, we don't care. And I think that is something that has uh, fundamentally, I think, changed, is that storage and the uses of storage has been very beneficial for a lot of people during COVID-19. So Ben, the economy is strengthened, and there's some question about some of that. It's recovered, strengthened. We don't know where it's going to go from here. Uh, you would think that that might mean that someone would purchase a home instead of rent a home. How would you how would you uh, answer that as it relates to uh, this uh, single family rental opportunity being potentially over? Yeah, it's a great question. We get it all the time, and I like to use a baseball analogy. I think we're in the top of the second in the single family rental business, um, and COVID has certainly been a test for all kinds of different asset classes and business strategies and certain asset classes have passed the test um, and single family rentals clearly won. Um, but we've been in the business since 2013. Uh, Michael's been in the self-storage business for longer than that. Um, there are long-term kind of secular trends at work in the single family rental business um, that predate the pandemic and will post-date the pandemic. Uh, so I think, uh, I think Michael makes a very good point that everybody got tested um, as an asset class, as an industry, as a business model. And we were fortunate to be in a space that uh, has passed the test. And in some respects, it has been a bump, just in the same way it has in self-storage, where people's focus on where do I live um, has kind of very much lined up with more space, more work from home capabilities, a back garden, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, but I can't stress this enough. This is not a sector that everybody dreamt up in March 2019 because it looked like a good opportunity. It's been a really good opportunity for an extended period of time. Which touches on your other question. You know, the, the, the time frame that single family rental has been on the institutional landscape or radar rather dates from the global financial crisis um, when there were a lot of cheap homes available from distressed sellers. Um, and people stepped in thinking of it as a trade, bought some cheap homes, leased them up, wrote some house price uh, recovery, and, and are now natural sellers. And part of that consolidation theme I was talking about earlier. Um, 
So one of the questions that we do get is, well, what happens if everybody can kind of get a mortgage again and they want to be a homeowner um, as opposed to a renter? Well, two things. One, the mortgage market is booming, um, but it's still significantly stricter in its uh, eligibility criteria. Um, and related to that, down payment requirements are significantly higher because home prices have gone up a lot. So home ownership for a large group of potential renters is really a bit of a mirage. And that within our strategy is the, the tenant base we focus on, sometimes referred to in industry research as tenants by necessity. Um, and it would require a almost unfathomable change in the terms of the mortgage market for those people, that customer base to become mortgage eligible. Um, I think the mortgage eligibility question is more relevant um, at higher price points, higher rental points, where your tenant base is often knowledge-based workers, often millennials, um, who are on their way to buying a house at some point. Um, but, and, the, and mortgage eligibility is not going to be a major issue for that cohort. That cohort tends to have delayed life decisions and renting is appealing because it, it enables more flexibility of future life decisions. So even there, the mortgage market's relatively open to that cohort, but they prefer to rent anyway. Now, all these things have been true for significantly pre-pandemic days and will also be true post-pandemic days. I think the pandemic just reaffirmed the importance of where you live and emphasize some of the advantages of single family rental. Um, but this is not a COVID play. This was tested by COVID, but this is a long-term secular play in the space. Yeah, and, and if, I, if I may add, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. I think that uh, COVID has created this aspect that people need the space. You know what I mean? They want something more than being cooped up in an apartment. And I think that's a fundamental significant change. And I think it's, there's some similarities where, you know, maybe we have month to month leases, but there's always this need for storage. I think that you're going to see a lot of people moving out of traditional apartments, Ben. And I don't know if you agree with me that say, Hey, you know what? I'm a renter. Why don't we rent something that we're aspiring that we want at some point? And that we get that additional space for the dog, the backyard, and God forbid that there's another pandemic, we're not locked up in a, a, uh, in, a, in a small apartment. I see that as being a fundamental change that's uh, significantly positive for the single family residential from my perspective. No, I would concur. I, I completely concur. The, the affordability of renting kind of pound for pound on the house you can rent versus the house you can buy, it definitely is, you can live in a much nicer way in a much yeah. nicer house in a much nicer neighborhood with much greater privacy and amenities for a lot less money. Yeah, when I, when I moved to New York City, um, I rented an apartment, took me about a year to save up enough money to buy a house in the suburbs. And in retrospect, um, that was a tall um, mountain to climb. And if I could have rented a house for at what I was paying or somewhere, I would have, I wouldn't have not, I would have definitely not, uh, I would have deferred that decision on buying and had that housing experience with uh, my fiance at that time, which is now my, my wife of 28 years. I easily would have done it. So I think there's a big mindset change that's, that's coming from that perspective. And Ben, just as kind of a thinking of tenants, remind me, but um, most, of, most of your assets are contained within a subdivision that is mostly single family rentals, or is it, or is it uh, where there's a large percentage of single family rentals and also single family homes that are owned? 
Yeah, for, for us specifically, it's a mix. Um, we have been buying older homes at much lower prices than it tends to cost to build new homes. So we tend to be um, more leaning away from new developments, um, but we do own houses in developments, multiple houses in individual developments. Across the industry, it's really a strong mix. As I said, there's this growing trend, uh, kind of build to rent, um, where big capital partners and home builders are building three, four, 500 unit developments with the intention of renting them all. Um, so it, it's a mix. So who, Ben, who is the typical tenant? Um, if you think about uh, single family rentals, who 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 who's doing that? What is their what is their age? Is it a family? Is it a single individual? Tell us a little bit more about the tenant. Yeah, no, it's across the board. And again, you need to really go back to the tenants by necessity versus tenants by choice dichotomy in the space um, to understand the different price points um, and, and the different service packages and the different neighborhoods and so forth. Um, it tends to be families. Um, it's rare to find a single um, or at least married couples. Um, age group tends to be across the board. Uh, there's a huge growth in the millennial cohort, um, often driven by kind of evacuation from multifamily, uh, but also just getting older and wanting more space and starting to have children um, and wanting more space and privacy. Uh, and now suddenly much more focused on quality of local schools um, than, than previously all the way through to folks who have got older children um, who like the neighborhood they're in, they can't afford to buy in it, they don't have access to the mortgage market that otherwise would be beyond them by renting it. So I think from a demographic perspective, uh, the only real kind of notable trend I would point to is millennials moving out of apartments into single family rental homes as part of delayed life decisions, which was going to happen anyway, just given the age cohort, uh, but has been accelerated by COVID. Otherwise, I think this is a very broad based uh, demographic base um, and, and the real distinction um, between strategies is whether or not you're focused on tenants um, who are, will always be tenants or tenants who are potentially on their way to owning a home. And Michael, who are your tenants? Yeah, it's pretty simple. 77% um, or, or so are residential. So people that just need some additional space. 19% are commercial users. Um, they tend to stay, uh, you know, on average, uh, residential tenant stays about 12 months. We're seeing 24 months on the commercial and then to a lesser degree, military and student uh, students. Military and students. Okay. Fabulous. Um, all right, guys, we, we've got time for one more question. And this is the big question, uh, which is, as it relates to a financial advisor, what is the opportunity for the financial advisor? How does the financial advisor use self-storage uh, and or single family rental with their clientele to strengthen that portfolio and strengthen the advisor's practice? I'll, I'll jump in there. I mean, I, obviously, um, you know, we have um, a few self-storage programs that alternative asset classes that can complement um, real estate allocation and an overall um, investment um, allocation. And uh, when you're looking at self-storage publicly traded REITs trading as high as 25% uh, percent premium to NAV, to come in and be able to buy um, our self-storage program at effectively NAV or the offering price, I think there's, there's uh, one aspect to this. In addition, you know, I think uh, you know, given our track record, 
of having a beginning, a middle, and the end. And the end is some type of liquidity event and to be able to reallocate um, those, those uh, funds to your, your investors and, and to reallocate them, I think is incredibly important. Also, you know, it's a strong cash flow for your, your investors. Not a lot of drama sometimes in the net asset value. I think that's incredibly important where the, the publicly traded brethren, non-correlation to uh, the stock market. I think those are just some of, of the few um, aspects of why investing in an alternative program, but also potentially allocating maybe into uh, self-storage. Okay, thank you, Ben. I would echo a lot of those sentiments. Um, I, I think uh, uh, just if I was gonna run down them, uh, it's a good growth and income opportunity. It's an asset class that people are probably under allocated to, institutions certainly are, uh, and I suspect retail investors uh, probably are too. Um, it's inherently much more stable um, and, and has lent itself, and there's long-term track records demonstrating that. Um, uh, and then I would add one other thing, which I think is probably true in self-storage as well, and it's definitely true in single family. And I'll start this with a little anecdote. After the global financial crisis, I had lunch with a, a very sophisticated institutional investor who was retiring and asked him what he was gonna do next. He said, I'm gonna buy single family homes and rent them. This sector is going to be a real sector. And he laid out all the factors as to why it would be. And I was like, mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and I asked him what the, what the challenges could be. And he said, I can't get scale. You know, I, it's, it's a marketplace which is open to individuals because the individual investment, the price point on the individual homes is not that daunting. It's not like buying a $50 million office building. So I can get in, but it's really hard to establish scale. And one of the things that I and we have tried to talk to single to, to advisors and broker dealers and investment professionals in the space is, the platforms that have built up in the single family rental space give individual investors the opportunity to invest at scale. We've all heard good stories about people who have bought one or two homes, rented them out, ridden up home price appreciation, made a little nice current return, sold it at a profit, great story. You can do that at scale now. And that's always been one of the challenges in the space. So if I'm sitting there as an advisor and I'm talking to my investor base, this is an asset class that I could play as a, like a myself, buy one or two homes, or I can play at scale with professionals who are riding the consolidation business and have access to that much cheaper capital. And I suspect the same is true in self-storage. So I think that's an important way to think about um, the, these sectors um, that has historically not really been available to individual investors. Okay, Ben, why don't you give us any last minute thoughts that you have about the remainder of the year uh, single family, but just overall economic, uh, is the market going up or down? Is the economy going to improve or is it going to, is it going to tank? Any last minute thoughts about that? And then we'll go to Michael. Um, I'm out of my depth on this one. Um, but with, with due humility, I think I'm generally in the camp that most people are in that the combination of pent up demand plus stimulus, um, is sets us fair for a period of time here. Um, I think the K-shaped recovery remains a fact. Um, it's a bit early to be doing celebratory dances as large numbers of people and parts of the economy that are still struggling. But I think the wind is largely at our backs. Um, and I think the overall economic picture for the next six, 12, 18 months, probably fairly robust. We're not gonna see the kind of crazy growth we're seeing right now because it's coming off the crazy depressed levels from a year ago. 
Um, but I think we're on our way back, uh, and I, I don't think I'm an outlier in that respect. With regard to single-family rental, uh, I think the sector is going to be characterized by more capital allocations um, and, and a very strong consolidation story, which will lead over the next 12 months to an increased uh, IPO pipeline uh, in our mind um, as people build up a sufficient scale uh, as private vehicles and access the public markets, all part of the long-term maturing uh, and consolidation trends that will drive single-family rental, we think, for multiple years um, and uh, um, potentially even decades. Okay, Michael, your thoughts? Well, you know what, I, I think uh, drafting on that, I would say, you know, ditto. I think the only thing I would add is, uh, you know, I think Jamie Dimon uh, recently uh, talked about uh, Goldilocks. So I think uh, we're going to be in the Goldilocks for, you know, probably the next 12 or 24 months. Um, things just seem, you know, incredibly robust in a, in a lot of um, areas. And, 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 uh, and you know, that, that does concern me. You know I mean? Can you get a little euphoric? I mean, we went from, you know, the Great Recession where there was just disaster everywhere to just new highs and new highs. And you got Bitcoin and you, you got all, all, you've got potentially change in our tax regime. Will that have some type of unintended consequences associated with what's going on. So I think from my perspective overall, you know, uh, from a storage perspective, we're going to have a great year. There's, there's no question around that. And I think that's going to roll into a great year next year. I'm not going to say that next year, our year over year is going to exceed um, the comps from this year, because quite frankly, they're pretty incredible, but they're going to be um, um, nicely positive. And so I think, you know, uh, I have no visibility after that. I just, uh, um, I'm hoping that uh, there's just a lot of uh, positive decisions that are made out of our government that we can keep the good times rolling. Yeah, let's, let's don't mess it up, right? Uh, Michael, one final question for you. How, are we, is the self-storage industry uh, at near capacity? Is there an overbuilding of self-storage overdevelopment? Well, one of the things on, on self-storage is, you know, we're, we're really more concerned about uh, the one, the three, and the five-mile area. We could care less around mile six. And so I think there are pockets. There's no question of pockets of areas where um, storage, um, as compared to an eight per square foot per capita, that may be higher than eight, which I think for us is uh, somewhat of a concern. Um, so there are markets like that. I know there's some markets in uh, Portland, some markets in Austin, Texas. But I think, you know, that's why you're building a diversified portfolio. But there's also markets in which you have barriers to entry. Northern California, San Francisco area, you really can't, you know, build anymore um, um, self-storage. So um, I think that um, when it comes to development, development's a risk for all of us. It's for every asset class. And it's not just exclusive to self-storage. I would say that to build a self-storage property doesn't, it's not going to take you three or four years. You know, it's probably nine months after, um, after you get the go-ahead to, to complete. But I think by and large that um, I always have to worry about um, development. And I think that, you know, that's why we're diversified in 19 states. And if you look at Toronto, Toronto's less than three um, uh, square foot per capita, where the average is eight. I'm not going to say Toronto should be eight or Canada be, should be eight because it's a different country and different mindset, but it easily could be a five. So I think that we need to focus on being diversified. However, that creates opportunities, Stacy. Let's just say a market does get to eight to 10 to 12. That's where the fools come in. They believe that trees are going to grow to the sky. And that's where I come in at the proper time and buy those at much higher cap rates and realistic values. 
which then make that type of transaction, maybe in an over mar overbuilt market, a home run. So you know what, I'm very patient at what we do and how we do it. And we'll, we're good capital allocators. If in fact things get frothy, I'll go into all cash. I'll buy just like I did in you know, uh, um, 07, 08, 09. I was buying all cash. And then when debt and equity started coming to the back of the marketplace, we had 100, 150 million to deploy. And we were buying for people that um, just wanted to get out of storage. And what's great about storage is it's traditionally the traditional multifamily owners that get into storage. And guess what happens when um, times get tough? They discard self-storage. They want to save multifamily. And I say, please do that. I'm there. And you can discard your self-storage property to me and I'll buy it and I will make money over time. And so I think uh, that creates um, opportunity and you've got to just be balanced. What I worry about, Stacey, and I, what I worry the most about is what I don't know. And that's what I learned in the Great Recession. Worry about what you don't know, because that's what, what's going to potentially take you out of the game. And that, that um, little bit of paranoia, that healthy paranoia, helps me get through difficult times. Right, because you you're looking for it. You might see something before others see it. It's very valuable. Good advice, uh, Michael. Well, Ben, Michael, this has been extremely helpful. Uh, the content is great. Our advisors are going to benefit from hearing from you. Um, we really appreciate what, what you both do for our industry and, and your firm, SmartStop and Pacific Oak. Uh, you're advancing solutions for uh, not only advisors, but advancing solutions for uh, their clientele. I hope that you'll come back and do this with us again. If someone's listening today and they want to find out more about SmartStopper, Pacific Oak, how can they best reach you, Michael? Well, you know, it's interesting. That's one of the things I would probably should have led with is that SmartStop is distributed through Pacific Oak. So one-stop shop, you'll call the, the sales team at Pacific Oak and you can get an allocation of storage and single family residential, you know, all from one incredible um, wholesaling team. Ben, I don't know if you want to add anything else. No, no, that was perfect. We, we, we live for such recommendations from sophisticated clients. Thank yeah. you, sir. And you can also find more on SmartStop at smartstopselfstorage.com. More about Pacific Oak at pacificoakcapitaladvisors.com. And that's going to wrap things, us, uh, wrap things up for us today from inside the vault. We appreciate you listening in with us today. And you could be on, uh, you could enjoy future uh, podcasts by joining uh, back in, visit our website for prior podcasts at blueoutpartners.com slash podcasts to watch past episodes. And we hope you have a great day.